0: But I want to begin a new series today, and the message that I'm going to be dealing with in this series is how to live in the dimension beyond average. Living in the dimension beyond average. The theme this year, of course, you're familiar with. It's symbolized uh, by the the icons down at the bottom: unashamed, undaunted, and unstoppable. That defines who you are as a child of God, and who you should be. But I want to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42 and 40 through 47. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing and in meals, including the Lord's Supper <clears throat> and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. I want to say right now, I still believe in miracles. I'm standing here today experiencing less pain than I have in many, many years because of what God did for me recently in those series of meetings that we've had just several months ago. And um, I didn't think that I would ever be able to get a moment free from pain. They had told me 12 years ago I would have to live with it the rest of my life. And I'm standing here today to tell you in spite of 24 surgeries and multiple major collisions and injuries that I am able to stand up here without pain right now. And that is a miracle that I cannot even begin to thank God enough for. And I say that to you because if you're here today and you need a miracle, you're in the right place. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. I want you to notice that there is a supernatural component to all these things. Deep sense of awe. Reverential awe. Signs and wonders. Miraculous signs. They all met together, shared everything they had. That is not something people normally do. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, not once a week. Some folk have a hard time coming once a week. And they met in their homes for the Lord's Supper. That portion of Scripture leapt out at me. Because usually we think of the Lord's Supper as something we do at church. All of our devotions are around church. Their devotions were around their homes. But they went to church. And they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God. And notice this. You have to understand the context. They were hated, despised. They were being persecuted. Their Savior had just been crucified. Their Lord had been nailed to a cross, condemned like a common criminal. And yet, they enjoyed goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Open your word. And help us to have the understanding that we might be able to grasp the concepts and principles of your word that can so completely and radically transform our lives. I give you permission today to cause whatever things we have embraced by way of values or thoughts or belief systems to be canceled and negated and removed and replaced with those that are solid and true that are founded on your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Say it one more time, amen. A new series, and I want to deal with what can happen in the lives of, and I'm going to say this, average people who have a supernatural experience and have had a supernatural encounter with a mighty God. First of all, on the surface, that doesn't hardly seem possible, does it? It's not plausible that average people would have an encounter with a supernatural God. But that is the message of this Bible. If it hasn't happened to you or anybody you know, don't write it off as being impossible because that is the message of this Bible. Take a look at the disciples in the upper room. As you glance around at the 120 beginning in the book of Acts chapter 1, It tells us the names of some of those who are there, some of the characters, individuals that were present on the scene when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2. That's occurred at the beginning of the chapter that I've read my text from. But in Acts chapter 1, we find out that they were just common people. There were the 12 apostles that in our minds now are these great spiritual superstars, but that certainly is not the case that existed at that time they were just average Joes there were Mary the mother of Jesus Mary Magdalene there was Martha Lazarus probably a number of others a total of 120 normal average people I'm going to use this word over and over again ordinary people ordinary in every possible way And as I've mentioned, even the apostles themselves, irrespective of the fact that we value and honor them so highly now, 2,000 years later, they were very average at that time. Acts 4.13, the members of the council, the Sanhedrin council, were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see, listen to this, that they were ordinary. Say it with me, ordinary. Men with no special training in scripture. Ordinary men. It's the next sentence that makes everything come alive. They recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Oh. Ordinary men who had been with Jesus and were transformed because of that experience. Knowing that God uses ordinary people gives me, and I believe it probably does you, hope. Because if there's anything that most of us believe about ourselves, it's that we are ordinary. People are always quick to point out what they believe is pride in others. You know why we point out pride in others? Because we feel so ordinary ourselves that when we see somebody else putting on airs, it <laughs> kind of makes us feel bad. we got a right to do that too. But we don't. The truth of the matter is that most, more people struggle with feelings of inadequacy than pride. That's the one thing I've learned in all these years of ministry and all the classes and courses I've taken in university. Is that more people struggle with feelings of inadequacy than they do some inordinate sense of I'm all that and a bag of chips. Not many people feel that way. The ones that do are usually those that have lived out there in that celebrity circle for so long they've lost touch with reality. But not most people. The Apostle Paul tells us that when God began the church, he intentionally chose to call and use, yeah, ordinary people. He bypassed kings. That was one reason they rejected Christ because, I mean, if he's the God of glory, why'd he show up through the back door of his own creation in a stable, for heaven's sakes? I mean, Herod's palace is just right over there. Isn't that more appropriate for a king of kings? But a stable with barnyard animals and straw, and you know what on the floor because there are animals around (laughs) He bypassed judges and artists. He bypassed the wealthy, the scholars, and instead he selected, here it is again, I'm going to say it to the point that it becomes redundant and boring, average people with which to begin his kingdom. He used those that no one else thought mattered. Everybody else would have passed them right by. You're selecting a team that's going to change the world. (laughs) I could have done a better job at picking people than Jesus did when he Pick people like the 12 apostles. I mean, the chief one was (laughs) wishy-washy. Couldn't depend on Peter to be there when you needed him. But God intentionally chose people like that. He did so because he actually gets more glory out of the victories and achievements of average people than he does those that are recognized as being talented and gifted. Because if you're talented and gifted, everybody says, whoa, look what they did. And you're liable to look in the mirror and say, look what I did. But when both you and the observing audience realize that this was far beyond the level of your ability or your skill sets, (laughs) that's when God gets the glory for what is done. Listen to Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. Notice this, God has chosen, say that with me, God has, say it one more time, God has, God voted, and he voted for you, and he voted for me. John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. We like to talk about when I decided to give my heart to God, (laughs) really, I found God. Really, I didn't know he was lost. (laughs) Paul says he chose the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. There it is. That's the key. Why did God choose nondescript, average individuals? Because he knew that in doing that, he would be the one that got the glory when something happened in their lives that caused the whole world to stand back and say, wow. In writing to the saints, we find out it didn't stay that way. Paul tells us there became some, there came to be people in the church that were very prominent. And to be sure, very many, many successful people are Christians today. Some of the best educated, some of the most talented, some of the wealthiest, some of the most prominent in their respective fields. And in short, some of the greatest people who live on the planet today are Christians. And they became believers in Paul's day as well. Pastor Irvin, who's facing a back surgery, tells me that in talking to his surgeon about the upcoming surgery, he found out that his, his surgeon attends a little church in the Heights. And teaches a Bible study right there in their home. One of the best surgeons in our city. No, the church started among people that were very ordinary. But it quickly began to grow until some of the wealthiest and brightest of the masses came to be members. As I mentioned, Paul even acknowledges that in his letter to the church in Philippi while he's imprisoned in Rome. He writes to encourage them and says that the saints who are members of Caesar's household send you greetings. I want you to get a load of that. The saints that are members of Caesar's household. This is the Caesar that was so cruel and sadistic that he would take Christians and impale them on a stake in his garden, douse them with pitch, tar—it's tar and then set them on fire and use them as human torches while he had his parties at night. This is that Caesar. And yet, in spite of persecution, Caesar, who's trying to stamp out the followers of this, this one called Christ, has to contend with the fact that while he's walking down his own hallway in his own palace, his own relatives say, praise the Lord, Caesar. And Paul writes to the Christians in Philippi to say that if Caesar can't even keep his own family from being converted. Don't you worry, the church has a great future. Amen. And the growth of the church is guaranteed. Put that up there, Philippians 4 and 2. There you see that. The saints greet you, but especially those of Caesar's household. So the church started with people that were average. But it didn't take long to attract the creme de la creme. I'm saying this because I want to say something else to you today. As to the apostles who shook their world, their vocations were average. Several of them, at least four that we know of, were fishermen. That's average, especially for their day. One was a tax collector. One was a political activist. Paul himself was a tent maker. Not much is even known about the others or their vocations. Their appearances from everything we read were average. Their heights were average. Their IQs were average. There is nothing in the Bible to indicate otherwise. In fact, their detractors, the Pharisees, who were, as a rule, very well educated, even made fun of the apostles for their limited formal education. The exception, of course, was Paul, who had two... PhDs, the equivalent of two PhDs by the time he was 22. But that wasn't the standard rule of thumb. They apparently had average families and lived in average homes. In fact, I've been in the actual home in Capernaum that Simon Peter, the great fisherman, the apostle, lived in. It was his house. Archaeologists have found the ruins of the very house Simon Peter lived in with his family, and have been able to confirm because of some of the facts, they, the, 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 the remains they found there, historical evidence they found that this was where Simon Peter lived. You know what I remember about being that house? How small it was. It was hardly bigger than my garage. Because you see, in that day and age, they didn't have big houses unless you were wealthy. And clearly, The 120 in the upper room were people who had normal concerns. They were average. They just experienced average things. Their kids did average in school. They got sick like everybody else. They faced average crises in their life. Their marriages were average. They were average in every way. In other words, and are you ready for this? (laughs) They were just like all of us. And that blesses me. Because these ordinary believers and these ordinary so-called apostles did extraordinary things after Pentecost. They literally shook the world and made their lives count. Great athletes of the day, nobody remembers their names. Great gladiators, soldiers, nobody remembers their names either. But I tell you what we still remember 2,000 years later. We still remember the names of ordinary men and women that God selected. History has forgotten the others, but it still talks about them. And there are several reasons that they, as ordinary people, impacted their world. They literally lived in the dimension beyond normal. And the reason that I call your attention to this is because if God could do that with them, it is possible and not only possible, I believe it is God's plan that those he selects today live in the dimension beyond normal as well. Because that's what brings him glory. This text from scriptures, from the Scriptures makes several very important points that I'm going to deal with over the next number of weeks. And these particular points can have a huge influence on whether or not we today experience a life that is merely average or if we live our lives in the dimension beyond average. First thing I want to tell you is they had an encounter Ordinary people, average people, had an encounter with an extraordinary God. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Between Acts chapter 1 that lists these ordinary people's names and the end of Acts chapter 2, there's Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. And that describes what happened when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. It all begins there. If you want to move into the dimension beyond average, I want to tell you that God is waiting to help you do so. And it all begins with an encounter with a living God of glory. If we follow the same principles that they followed then, I have no doubt. That it would work as well today as it did even then. You see, what enables you to live in the dimension beyond average is not your talents or your gifts or your abilities. And that's what I'm trying to get across to you. It's not who you know or the connections you make or the doors they open or the opportunities that come your way. It is the power of the Holy Spirit within you that enables you to go beyond the limits of your own humanity. That is the game changer. That's what changes everything. Why is it then, and this is what I've got to ask you, why is it then that most Christians never reach that place? Because you talk to the average believer, and they're still locked into a place called average. During the years, I've had a chance to preach literally in thousands of churches. That's not an exaggeration if you know anything about my conference speaking schedule. And if there's one thing that I've observed during all of these years... It's that most Christians don't make it to that dimension beyond average. Most of the people you know, even though they are believers, will never get there. But I want to emphatically declare, you can. I need somebody to say, I can. Amen. Amen. Most people you have met have unconsciously taught themselves to accept limitations. They have learned to believe that many things are simply beyond their reach. And that life is filled with challenges that are too difficult to overcome. And so they start out desiring certain things, and then they get slapped in the face with reality. And they give up. And they stop believing. That was never a problem with the early church. I want you to hear what I'm saying. It was not a problem with the early church. Perhaps it is because they had just witnessed the ministry of Christ and all of the miracles. And they transitioned directly from that into the era following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the supernatural just continued until they reached the point that they never questioned the power of the God within them. They stopped looking at their own abilities. And they started recognizing the fact that the one who lives inside of me will enable me to do things far beyond my own limited giftedness, far beyond my innate abilities or my education or my connections. There's someone who lives inside of me that is entirely unlimited. I am limited, but he is not. And they really believe that Christ in me It's going to make a difference. (laughs) They believe with all of their heart that when they as a person or human being with their limitations, which we all have, encountered a situation that was greater than they could overcome within themselves, (laughs) they said, not to fear. (laughs) Through Christ, I can do all things. Amen. Who strengthens me. They gave up on human resources and decided to avail themselves of heaven's resources. And they said, I have living in my heart the very God that spoke the world into existence. Why would I allow my life to be defined by limitations when he lives inside of me? And they truly began to believe That with God, all things are possible. Very few people you know live at that place of faith in their lives. They've trained themselves to look at problems and discover problems and find the problems and see the challenges. And they measure themselves against the problem and say, I fall short. Only a few people you know have trained themselves to look within each problem for opportunities. A few people see the same challenges that others see and say of themselves, I cannot do this. A few look and say, I can't either, but I've got a God inside of me who can When you look at the 12 spies that went to spy out the promised land, when Israel was coming out of the wilderness, they came to a place called Kadesh Barnea. Do you know what that means in Hebrew? It means holy place. It was holy because they're transitioning from the wilderness and that place of limitations, and they're about to enter into their promised land, a land that flows with milk and honey. And it's called a holy place. Because when you move into what God created you to do and be in this life and fulfill your destiny, that's holy to God. God doesn't get any glory out of you living over here, limited, broke, suffering, and miserable. But when you face challenges and cross over anyway, that's when God begins to get some praise. Amen. And I want you to know that for every person, there is a dimension beyond average. There is a promised land. Christians years ago made a terrible and a tragic theological error. And they began to define the promised land as heaven. Beulah land, my home, eternal. No. No. That's not the promised land. The promised land is here right now. It's the life you're supposed to be living with Christ inside of you. It's the promise of what a life can become that was average when God moves in on the inside. That's your promised land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And I want you to know that if you default, what happens is the enemy moves into the house. That you didn't have to build, begins to drink the water from the well you didn't live, dig, begins to eat the, 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 the produce and the goods from the barn that you didn't even plant to grow. The enemy moves in and takes over what's supposed to be yours. And I want to ask you how many of you right now have allowed the enemy to occupy the place you're supposed to be living? I need somebody to say, no Canaanites going to live in my promised land. You say, isn't that unfair of Israel to come in and boot the Canaanites out? No, it was their land before. They had gone down into Egypt during the famine, and now they were coming back home to take what was already theirs. Oh, You may have had to do without what God wanted you to have because of some rough, dry places in your life. But that doesn't mean you have to live in Egypt the rest of your life or the wilderness either. I need somebody to say, I'm I'm getting ready to get what's mine. Would you do that? I'm moving into the life I was meant to live. I'm, I'm going to the place that God created me to occupy. And you know what they did? They sent 12 spies in to spy out the land. Now, let me make this very clear. They didn't send the spies out. They were not tasked to go and see if the land was good god had already said it was god already said it's a land that flows with milk and honey their responsibility was to go in and find where the military compounds were at the population centers and where the armies were be- were based so that israel could develop a strategic tr- a strategic plan to go in and take these particular places but instead 10 of the spies acted outside of their mandate 12 were sent 10 of them came back and said we can't go in that land it's a terrible place there are giants and there are walled cities that stretch up to the heaven look if God said it's good it's good it doesn't matter what it looks like if God said it's good you need to accept God's analysis. If God said it's a land that flows with milk and honey, who am I to question what God has decreed and declared? We get into trouble when we start trying to second guess God. Oh, I'm I'm talking to somebody right now. Two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, came back and said, you guys are all messed up. It is a good land. And we're well able to take it. That's my word for everyone in this building right now. You see, the 10 discouraged the nation of Israel and they turned around and left what was holy to go back into the wilderness. They left this place where they were about to move into their destiny and promise and turned around and went back into the limitations of a desert. A desert is a very limited place. Limited resources, limited water, limited food, limited everything, limited shade. They chose to go back, and as a result, God let them die in the wilderness. Amen. Now... This is what Joshua and Caleb said regarding them as they were going back. Come on, guys. We are well able. I want to say to every one of you that the message still stands today. If you have not moved into the land that is beyond, the dimension that is beyond average, you are well able to get there. You don't have to settle for second best. And notice, two out of 12 said we can't. That's probably a pretty fair ratio of how many in this room see opportunities where others only see impossibilities. Two out of 12, that's 16% roughly. Or in other words, 84% of us are people who have learned to only recognize the problem. Which one of those are you? Because if you're one of those that has to go where the crowd goes, I want you to realize up front, 84% are not going to live in the dimension beyond average. And if you've got to belong to that crowd, you're going to let them rob you of what God has in store for your life. I need somebody to say, I can't do that. You see, the kingdom of God is all about a new life with new potential and new opportunities. It's about God's word teaching us that the limitations we accepted so readily before we were saved that were programmed into us in our fallen nature are actually lies planted there by the enemy. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, it opens up new dimensions to you that you could never find by yourself. The ceilings you once knew are shattered and removed and the places that you once were limited by that defined your life, you're meant to blow right by those into a new world because you've got somebody on the inside that's helping you. Oh, hear what I'm talking about. You've got somebody on the inside working on your behalf that can do more than talent can do. He can do more than ability can do. He can do more than connections can do. And these opportunities exist for every person that's been filled with the Holy Spirit. No wonder the the enemy works so hard in this whole game of branding to brand Christians As being limited, people who will never find the joy that we who are unsaved find. Yeah, joy of one out of two marriages ending in divorce. The joy out of 67% of all second marriages ending in divorce. The joy out of 74% of all third marriages ending in divorce. Yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want any of that. Thanks, but no thanks. I'll stay right where I'm at. I used to be out there where you are, but once I got saved, I found something better. Once I gave my heart to God, I discovered a life without limitations. You see, most people settle for too little, even with the Holy Spirit inside of them. We settle for a doctor's report that says, well, not going to get any better. Rather than believing the report of the Word of God that says, By His stripes we're healed, we settle for the report that is issued on the economy. The economy's not good. And we settle for the report that we have to struggle to be able to get by, rather than listening to the Word of God that I'm blessed coming in and I'm blessed going out and I'm blessed when I I stand up and I'm blessed when I sit down. Whose report will you believe? We settle for the information that we've got enemies who are conspiring to work against us rather than the report of the word of God that no weapon formed against you can prosper. Hallelujah, they'll dig a pit for you, but they'll fall into the very pit they dug for you themselves. And I need somebody in this building to recognize that when you get God on the inside, he makes a difference. He makes a difference. And I thank God for all of my wonderful doctors, the doctors that told me I'd never live without pain. (laughs) I thank God for them. I thank God for the doctors that told me the rest of my life I'm going to have to live every moment awake or asleep with pain. But I got news for you. I got somebody living on the inside that doesn't recognize the limitations that others have to live with. You see, most people settle for way too little, even in the church. They're like the baby elephant that has been chained to a stake driven into the ground. And when he pulls against it, he discovers because of that heavy chain and that deep stake, thick and strong, that's driven with a mallet into the ground that he cannot break free. And once he accepts defeat and pulls against it for a few days... Once he accepts that I can't break free, his trainer then removes the chain Because the rough chain will irritate his skin and will erode a hole in his leg that can become infected. In its place, the trainer puts a little thin rope. Because when once that baby elephant has accepted its limitations, then the chain can be removed and he'll never try to break free again. And you see this, you see these elephants. I see them all the time in in India particularly where they. They've trained them to do heavy lifting and and a big, huge elephant with a little old rope around its ankle and it just stands there captive to that rope. Its world is defined by the length of the rope. It doesn't get to go beyond that. The stake driven in the ground and the circumference that the rope will draw around it is as big as the world that it lives in and it won't get any bigger It's defined by its limitations when all it has to do is look at that little rope and say, I'm out of here, baby, and give one good kick and that rope will break. There are many Christians who are just like that. You're defined by your sickness. You're defined by your job. You're defined by your financial struggle. You're defined by the area you live in. And Can I say this? These days it's become popular for us all to be victims. Come on, help me out. Don't you go silent on me. That's right. I'm looking for the line for the Cajuns to stand in right now so I can go be a victim too. Everybody's a victim, raised bad, single-family homes. Look, it will only limit you if you accept the fact that that rope defines your world. It doesn't have to define who you are. I need somebody to say I'm not living like this anymore. Amen. I know you're going you're gonna to laugh because I've stated it so many times, but I think the phenomenon of reality TV is terrible. It is my pet peeve. I would rather watch paint dry than watch the Kardashians. But you have to look at why that phenomenon exists. It exists because so many people today feel their lives are without purpose and without accomplishment. Having accepted their limitations, having to learn, having learned to live with the rope driven, uh, uh, tied around the st- stake driven in the ground. They've learned to live without purpose or accomplishment. And having accepted their limitations, they live and find ex- the excitement they crave by vicariously experiencing it through the life and the achievements of those on the screen. Now you may do that, but it saddens me because underneath the reality show phenomenon, is a fact that is actually heart wrenching. It is gut tearing. Rather, it's the Kardashians or housewives of L.A. People watch them because they're looking for someone who has found what they believe would bring them happiness too. If only I could get beyond the rope. And they find somebody they think that's outside the little limited circle that defines their world. And they say, oh, if I will never get there, let me at least watch somebody and forget my cares for a little a while. And that is tragic. Because God never meant for you to be defined by limitations. Through Christ I can do all things. You've seen them. They're called processionary caterpillars. They make their nest. My grandmother when I was being raised on her farm she had pecan trees and they would they would create these nests in the trees and they do it in pine trees, processionary caterpillars. Listen to this.
1: The noted French naturalist Jean-Henri Fabre studied processionary caterpillars in great detail. What makes this caterpillar special is its instinct to follow and lockstep the caterpillar in front of it. This behavior not only gives the caterpillar its name, but a deadly characteristic as well. Fabre demonstrated this unusual behavior with a simple experiment. He took a flower pot and placed a number of caterpillars in single file around the circumference of the pots rim. Each caterpillars head touched the caterpillar in front of it. Fabre then placed the caterpillars favorite food in the middle of the flower pot. Each caterpillar followed the one ahead thinking it was heading for the food. After a week of this mindless activity, the caterpillars started to drop dead because of exhaustion and starvation. All they had to do to avoid death was to stop the senseless circling of the flower pot and head directly toward the food, less than six inches away. However, the processionary caterpillars couldn't extricate themselves from their mindless behavior.
0: That's people following people going nowhere but you think they're making it and people die with the real thing they're looking for only scant inches away I'm preaching to somebody right now who are you following? this Bible sets us free from the limitations of the past. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You may have been limited before you came to God, but hear me, with Christ on the inside, it pushes back the restrictions and the limitations of life, and you step into the dimension beyond average. You don't have to live an average life anymore. Here's what we do. We're like the processionary caterpillar. We get up when the alarm goes off in the morning. We brush our teeth, we shave, we eat the same old breakfast we've always eaten. We get in the same car on the same freeway, drive to the same job, put in the same meaningless hours, eat the same bologna sandwich for lunch. I hope you're not that bad off and then go get in back to the same job punch the same time clock get in the same car go to the same house get in the same lazy boy get the same remote what's the same boring tv programs on tv Go get in the same bed and go to the, to sleep and get up in the morning the next day and do it all over again until Saturday. Hey, Saturday. Then we go get the same lawnmower and go out and cut the same grass and watch the same car and paint the same house. Hello, am I talking? Wash the same clothes. And then on Sunday, hopefully, this is the good part, go to the same church, amen, and hear the Word of God because that is what the only thing you're going to have that's going to get you out of this circle. And then Monday morning, started all over again. Processionary caterpillars dying only a few inches away from real life. And that's not what God meant for you to spend your life doing. I want you to know God wants to make your life a testimony of how great he is. Instead of you wishing you could live somebody else's life, how would you like to live a life so full and rewarding that you actually enjoyed it and that others wanted to live your life? And they turned the TV off and said, let's watch the Smiths across the street. They're better than the Kardashians are, amen, because God has blessed you so much. Jesus spoke of ground that produced some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Now the ground is referring to, he called good ground. That is, all of that was good ground. There were three other types of soil that did not produce. That among thorns, that among rocks, and then that that the birds of the air stole away, but the good ground was the same. And the ground right here that was good could produce the same quality of harvest as the ground right here. And it was all good ground. And then he took seed in this parable and he sowed good seed, seed being the word of God. And the word of God is the same throughout. It gives life at every level. And so you can't say the fault was with the seed or with the ground, but then when the harvest season comes, some brought forth 30. And then some brought forth 60. And some brought forth a hundredfold. Why were the productivity yields so vastly different when the ground was the same and the seed was the same? And he tells us the ground is our hearts. Here, I want you to think about this what he's really asking his crowd is why is it that some lives only produce 30-fold and others maybe get inspired enough and motivated enough and another birthday comes around, and they realize that time is running out, or they get a bad diagnosis at the doctor and that's a wake-up call and they say, man, i got to make my life count. And, and you know what they do? They start kicking at the heat and raising the bar. That's the 60-fold. But some make it all the way to 100 Which one are you? Do you want to live the rest of your life getting the same word? Having the same opportunities as everybody else and then at the end of the day only have 30 fold to show for it? Because it's really your decision and the whole purpose of that parable is to make people cognizant of that one fact because this is what Jesus said. He who has ears to hear let him hear. I'm trying to talk to you, he said. And I want to know, are you listening? I know you're healing with your hearing with your intellect, but are you hearing with your heart? Because that's what I'm talking to right now. What he's really saying is, it's up to you, isn't it? It's up to you. You've got the same Holy Spirit inside. And somebody else receives a miracle, yet... The scripture plainly says God's no respecter of persons. Why is it they're so blessed? And God's going to get such incredible uh, uh, glory out of their testimony. And then for me, eh, not so much. Jesus took three of his disciples with him into the Mount of Transfiguration. Three. But that wasn't all the disciples he had. He had 12. 12 3 of them got to see what the other 12 never did ever see for the rest of their life there were no rewinds the three went up to the top of the mountain and i got to tell you it's harder to get there whole lot easier to stay at the base of the mountain isn't it because the climb is not so severe The altitude is not working against you. I mean, that's work. Your thigh muscles are burning like they're on fire. But three of them climbed the mountain with Jesus, and when they arrived at its peak, suddenly Jesus was transfigured before them, and his raiment and his human suit became transparent And his inner radiance and godness burst through until he was shining brighter than the sun. They were reaching for Ray-Bans. And then suddenly Moses and Elijah, the two most significant prophets of the Old Testament appeared. And it is an awe-inspiring moment that they will never get over as long as they live. For the rest of their life, they're going to talk about it. Hey, did I ever tell you the time that I went up the mountain with Jesus? Man, I didn't want to. I was tired, and we had been on a long journey, and and I got thirsty. And and man, climbing that mountain, my my legs burned until I thought I was going to collapse. My mouth felt like it was dry and had cotton in it, but Jesus asked me to go, so I kept on going. The other 12... The rest of the 12 stayed at the bottom. The scripture doesn't really say that he instructed them, at least I'm not aware that it does, to stay at the bottom. It just says he took three. In my mind, that could also mean that some of them just didn't want to go. Didn't want to pay the price. You go climb that hill by yourself. (laughs) Tell me what it looks like when you get up there. I've seen Mount Everest several times. the journeys that we have done, Bible schools, missionary work. I've had a number of occasions while in India and in Nepal to fly right by Mount Everest. Somebody said, do you ever climb it? I said, no. And that's not all that story either. As long as they've got an airplane and this is the name of the airline, Buddha airplane. I'm going to look out the window and say, there it is right there. And I'm going to take a picture. I'm going to take a selfie. Hey, look at me Flying. By Mount Everest, because I don't want to pay the price. And everybody has to make that determination. But here's the rub: Three of them got to see Christ in all of his radiant inner glory. Three of them got to see the transcendency of his person. Three of them. Because remember, up to this point, they didn't really know who He was. It wasn't until the week before he died that he asked them, Who do you say that I am? And only one got it right. They still are thinking he's a prophet, he's a master, he's a rabbi, but he's actually God in flesh. He was in the world, but the world knew him not. That's what the Bible says. And three of them that day got to see God burst through his human covering. And they got to see something that would be branded into their memory until the day they died when they had grandchildren. They would sit them on their knee and tell them, did I ever tell you about the time that I climbed the mountain with Jesus? When they're old and doddering They've lost their teeth. Let's talk it like this. They're going to be saying, Y'all remember that time I, I climbed that mountain with Jesus? But nine of them will never tell that story. And my point is, there are some stories you will never be able to tell if you don't climb the mountain. Oh, I need an amen somewhere. And you're gonna to have to live with that like the other nine did because no matter what happened from that time forward, how would you like to be the nine? When they start telling about their mountain experience, oh, there they go again, just to, and you get sick of hearing it because in your heart, you missed out on it. I wanna say this, God has more for you. That's the point of this whole message. God wants you to live in the dimension beyond average. He doesn't want your life to be wasted. I close with a movie clip from a movie that is taken from a book that I hated when I was a kid because they made me read it in school and it's called Oliver Twist and it was written by Charles Dickens. And if I ever could have gotten my hands on Charles, I would have given him the Dickens because I hated that book. I've learned to love it. Watch this and I close. They've all been given one little bowl of gruel, and they're hungry. This is an orphanage. And the money collected for the orphanage is using to fund the wealthy lifestyles of those who run it. And the boys, Oliver Twist decides he wants more.
1: Please, sir, I want some more. What? Please, sir, I want some more. Uh,
0: That's the beetle.
1: Mr. Lupins. Uh, I beg your pardon, sir. Oliver Twist has asked
0: for more. For more! Compose yourself, Mr. Bumble, and answer me distinctly. Do I understand that he asked for more after he had eaten his supper? He did, sir. That boy will be hanged. That's what the world tells you. Except where you're at. I'm Oliver Twist. I want more would you stand with me right now I want to live in the dimension beyond average would you come and join me I want to pray with you I want to live in the dimension beyond average I'm not going to accept an average life and go in circles the rest of my existence I want what God has for me I want more than an average marriage I want more than average finances. I want more than to be limited by the reports of doctors, thank God for them. I want more than to spend my life wishing that things were different. I want more. I don't want to go through the rest of my life and come to the end of my days and wonder was this all there was to it? And this is what the Christian life is supposed to be about.